Well, if you've taken our Ignite class, some of this today especially is going to be a bit of a review for you. Um, how many of you guys know you have to hear things about 10 times before you really get it? You know that? Say as a show, you got to hear it about 10 times. So it'll be number two for you, okay? So if you just read your Ignite material about eight more times, right, you'll be good to go. Um, but it's not going to cover exactly the same material, but because we're introducing some of the ideas, there will be some overlap. And I kind of I, I want to share some of my heart as we go into this series starting today. Um, I have a, I have a burden in my heart, and this is something that God has been speaking to me personally about, and I've been talking about it with a number of our leaders and our staff members, that for me, the prayer of my heart has been, God, I want to bear much fruit in eternity. And the reason I put it like that is because um, that's how the Bible puts it, right? That's how the Bible puts it. And if you're familiar with um, one particular parable that Jesus talks about, um, it's the parable of the sower. This one, I feel like God has been putting on my heart a lot over the past year. This past year, I feel like this parable has come up many times in my heart. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, it's the story where Jesus talks about a farmer, and a farmer scatters seed, um, and some of it falls on the road, and some of it falls on the rocky soil, some of it falls on the thorny soil, and some of it falls on good soil. And he talks about that the, the seed is the, the good news about the gospel, it's the good news about the kingdom, right? And that seed that falls on the good soil, it says, produces Fruit, it produces a crop, you know, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, or thirtyfold. And I've been praying that God would give me grace for a hundredfold anointing. Um, just being honest, I think it's like almost impossible. <laughs> That's how I feel. Like when I when I feel this in my spirit, I just feel like hundredfold. I mean, I'm like, that's like Abraham, right? That's like you know, all the people that we just were talking about in Hebrews 11, right? They're like the hundredfold fruit in eternity. But there's just been this audacity in my spirit to ask that God would increase my eternal fruitfulness. And in the same way, I find that when I start praying these kind of seasonal prayers for myself, I inevitably feel the burden to start to expand them to my physical family and to my spiritual family. So inevitably, I start to pray for Hannah and my children that they would bear great fr fruit in eternity. And I start to pray for you guys. And this is my burden for you. I pray that you would bear fruit that remains, that lasts, that's eternal in nature. And I want to say it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing. And in so much of Christianity, we emphasize the importance of receiving salvation and going to heaven. And how many of you guys know that is so incredibly important? We love that truth. But I always say that salvation is just the front door of the kingdom. That's just the beginning of the kingdom, right? So I, 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 I want everyone to be saved. I want everyone to know him. But what I also long for is that for those of us who do know Jesus, who are following him with our lives, that we would bear much fruit in eternity. And that's a burden that I have. And I pray for you guys all the time. By the way, the way I judge my own success, right, the way I judge my own success, I always tell this to our leaders. The way that I do that first and foremost in every season is that if I have a thriving love for God in my heart, 
I consider it a success. And that's really important. I would encourage you to take on that same barometer, that same criteria. How do you gauge success in your life? Well, I think the best way to do it is by following the first commandment, right? That you would love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. I think what that does is it protects you from judging yourself by foolish criteria. And the tendency is that we tend to do that as believers. Why? Because our tendency is to esteem that which people esteem. Rather than what God esteems, right? So that's the first and foremost way that I judge myself. I want to have a thriving love for God, right? Even if, you know, my ministry dies, right? If all of you go, man, Pastor Dennis, he sucks. I'm leaving this stupid church, right? And there's like five people, right? As long as I still have a thriving love for God in my heart, I'm still going to call it a success that season, right? Now, it'll be hard, right? I'll get fired, right? Like, thank you, God, right? It'll still be hard. But in, in my heart, I still see that as a success. Make sense? Now, with that first thing, the second thing, the way that I judge myself is not by how, you know, powerful a sermon seems or how powerful a service seems or by how many people we have or any of those things. No, the thing that is burdening my heart is this. Oh, I pray that you, that you would live a life worthy of the calling that you have in Christ Jesus, right? I think how this is a prayer in a new to bear lasting fruit in eternity. Am I making sense? And this is a prayer and a cry of my heart. My desire is that you would lead long lives full of fruitful ministry, right? That this is just the beginning. Whatever you're doing on your college campuses, whatever you're doing here at BTM, the ministry that you're doing right now in this season, I pray that that's just the first fruits for you and that you have a long life filled with amazing ministry in your life. That's my hope and my desire. And now I need to tell you something else. The reality is that many of you, when you graduate, will be sorely tempted to fall away from the faith. Now, I was talking to somebody privately the other day, and I just straight up said, yeah, no, the, 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 the great probability is that, that many people in BTM, after they graduate, they will fall away from the faith. And I felt a little bit of a check in my heart, because maybe that won't be the case, right? Statistically, it's absolutely true. What I've seen in my own experience, it's true, but I have a hope that that won't be the case, right? I have a hope that the vast majority of us will make it through the obstacles and the difficulties of this upcoming season and be able to do well from God's perspective. That's my hope and my desire, but I need to give a sober warning. The reality is that I just know from experience there's two very difficult transitions in people's lives. One of them is when you graduate high school and you go to college. Statistics tell us that in that transition, half of people who follow Jesus will fall away from the faith. One half. That's an incredibly high, like, that's a incredibly high number. Why does that happen? Because all of a sudden, you're given massive amounts of freedom. And you're brought into a system of education that is going to disciple you, is going to influence you into secular humanism. Right, So when you have all of this secular humanistic influence, and if you're not familiar with that word, don't worry, you will be. Okay. If you're not familiar you know, with this idea, this is what happens to so many college students. Because 
in high school, really, many of us, you know, we just went to the church that our parents made us go to, right, for many of us. But in college, it's kind of, for many of us, it's our first step into adulthood, meaning we now have the power, some degree of authority of our own lives to make a decision. Do we actually want to go to church? What kind of church do we want to go to? We're starting to make those decisions ourselves. And the reality is that many Christians, they find out that their faith in Jesus was really not that strong at all. And guess what? That's exactly what the parable of the sower of the farmer talks about, right? There's the soil that falls on rocky ground. The soil that falls on rocky ground, it says that the seed, you know, goes in the soil. And what happens? The person immediately receives it with joy. What am I saying? I'm saying these are people who we would look at and say they've had a salvation experience. They've had an experience where they gave their lives to Jesus, where they received it with joy. But this kind of soil, it says that when, because it has no root, no depth to the faith, as soon as hardship or persecution comes, it dies. Am I making sense? And this is the rocky soil. And if I can be blunt and honest, there are many people who make the decision to follow Jesus in their lives, but never develop depth. And when it gets hard, they have no depth of trust, and so they fall away. They start to blame God. They start to blame the church, right? And they fall away from him. Why? Because they have no depth. But the parable of sorrow also warns of a second type of, of soil. And this is the thorny soil. This is the soil, right, where it says that the anxieties of life, the worries of this life, and the deceitfulness of riches, of wealth, choke the word, and they make it unfruitful. Now, I want to say this. This is what you will be tested with in the next season of your life after you graduate from college. Many of you have never dealt with this test. Why? Because your parents are paying for everything. You've never had to deal with the responsibility of providing for yourself completely. You've never had to deal with getting fired or getting laid off or not being able to find a job and then just being like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Live in my car? Many of us have never had to deal with that danger and that reality. Why? Because we know that our parents are going to be able to provide for us. We've never yet taken responsibility for our own lives. So we've never had to deal with the real anxieties of life. Am I making sense? And the deceitfulness of riches. I'm saying that when you graduate from college, you are going to have to start dealing with this. And I'll say it again. Many people fall away from the faith. And what often happens is that for those that stay in the faith, what I see over and over and over again is that they lose their passion. They lose their passion. And there's a good reason why. Because guess what? When you start working 40 to 50 hours a week, I remember I had a, I had a, a student who graduated my last ministry, and she worked for an investment banking company, and this girl was working 100 hours a week. She, she would you, often sleep on the couch in her office. And that was it, right? In some job fields, especially if you're going to go into a very competitive industry, right? If you want to go to a top-tier business school, top-tier law firm, well, congratulations. You're asking for hell in the next season of your life. 
because they will work you to the bone, right? These are very competitive industries. I went to a, a pretty good school up north, and a lot of my friends went on to very competitive fields. And I'll tell you that for many of them, it was very difficult because when you're working 40 to 50 to 100 hours a week in a certain environment and you come to church and all you get is a nice lesson about how you can be a slightly better person, it's hard to see what the calling and the purpose in your life really is. It's difficult to see it. Let me put it to you another way. If you don't have a vision for the kingdom that expands beyond the church and what the church does, you will not be able to be passionate in your faith while you're working a full-time job. Am I making sense? A church-centered vision is the thing that kills the faith of many believers. They lose their passion for Jesus. They lose their passion for the kingdom. And all of a sudden, their life is about work because they're in a workplace that has its own culture. Guess what? When you sign up with a company, you become influenced by the culture of that company. And how do companies work? Well, they threaten you, don't they? They threaten you with demotion and firing if you don't get results. And they offer you promises of reward. If you do well, what happens? Well, you get promotions and raises. Am I making sense? And so what happens in the company? Everybody is like, I want to get promoted. I want to get a raise. And you see, you know, it's paid. And you're like, that's awesome. And then Bob gets another promotion. And then Sam gets goes find another job at like a really nice company. And you're like, what am I doing, dude? I'm like failing. And there's this sense of the values of your company are now starting to affect you. Am I making sense? Okay, if, if it's hard for you to imagine this, you will have a rude awakening one day, okay, to the reality of life, okay? That's kind of what this series is about, okay? I want to I wanna give you that rude awakening now, okay? Why? Because I want you to be prepared for it. Am I making sense? What we're going to be talking about is we're going to be going into how the kingdom is far bigger than the church. Let me put it to you this way. One thing, when I, um, you know, I was a pastor at, at, in Berkeley. I was a young pastor. And I was, you know, we were doing a good job of making Christians passionate, right? Like, people in our group were really passionate. They wanted to pray all the time. They wanted to be in our prayer room constantly. But when they graduated, you know, from school, they didn't want to get jobs. And to be honest, I couldn't blame them. Right? Because I was glad that I was a pastor. I got to just, you know, I got to do kingdom work all the time. Right? And these poor saps had to go become accountants and, you know, lawyers and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, sorry, dude. Right? But they didn't want to get jobs. And I started to realize as a pastor of this ministry that something is wrong here. Right? Something's wrong. They don't want to get jobs. And I started to pray about it. And this is where the Lord um, really began to help me understand that the problem was me. The problem was me. What I had been doing is I had been giving them a vision of the kingdom that was just the church, right? So when they imagined, I want to live for God, I want to serve the kingdom, what that meant to them was I want to do ministry stuff, 
right? I want to be involved in our campus ministry. I want to disciple these students. I want to spend time in the prayer room. I want to do these things. And why the heck would I want to go and get a job? I'd rather just be poor. Now, there's something admirable about this, right? There's something admirable. Part of me was like, yeah, yeah, until God started to rebuke me, right? Why? Because what I had done was I had put an expectation on these, you know, on these young people that, you know, all I want you to do is I want you to live at church and be at church and just do church and help us make the church great. And the problem with that is that that was my calling. That was what I was supposed to be doing. And the issue was that I was so much better at it than they were. Right? Like I was like the worship leader. I was speaking all the time. I could lead better Bible studies than any of those fools. Right? So what we really needed to do was multiply me. You know what I mean? I I didn't really need them. I needed them to help me do ministry. Does this make sense? Right? And the Lord's like, Dennis, you fool. Right, he started to speak to me about how the kingdom is so much bigger than the church. Right, he started to correct me about how I had been giving them a vision that was actually hurting them. Okay, and the Lord started speaking to me about this. And what happened was I ended up, I got in a conversation with a, a pastor in Korea who, who mentioned something just in, in, in our conversation. He's like, oh yeah, you're talking about like Seven Mountain stuff. And I was like, what? What's Seven Mountain stuff? And he started to explain to me what the whole Seven Mountain deal was. And as he was sharing it with me, I was like, that is exactly what God has been speaking to me personally about. And I, I went home and I started, you know, I started researching all this stuff, okay? Now, for those of you who are completely unfamiliar with this, I want to explain what the Seven Mountain Mandate is, okay, and what it isn't. Seven Mountain Mandate is a prophetic word given to two leaders in the body of Christ. They are Lauren Cunningham, who's the founder of Youth with a Mission, and Bill Bright, who's the founder of Crew, of Campus Crusade for Christ, okay? Now, if you don't know, these are, these are the two largest Protestant missions organizations in the world. So God spoke to them. They had lunch in 1974, 1975, something around that. And then they came together, and they said, hey, the Lord gave me a word for you. And he's like, no way. I had a dream, and the Lord gave me a word for you too. And they shared their dream with one another, and it was like almost the same dream. What they both saw was they both saw seven mountains, and they saw that on the mountains were things, were names, like the church and business and family and education, and there are all these places of cultural influence. And what the Lord spoke to them, he said that you've been trying to do everything through the church mountain, but to effectively disciple nations, you have to rule over all the mountains. Does this make sense? Now, I think it's significant. Whenever you see prophetic words with, with, that are really crazy like that, where they randomly have the same dream and they tell each other, right, that's a sign, especially because these are two of the greatest and most faithful leaders in the church, right? These are highly respected people all throughout the body. Why? Because they've been really effective at doing traditional church, 
right, which is to get people saved. They're the best at it, right? In, in our generation, these are like two of the best ever, right? And what God was rebuking, he was correcting them, telling them the problem is that you're too focused on the church rather than on all these other areas in society. And so I started, I started eating this up. I started really researching this, and I felt like God started to grow my understanding of what this is about, okay? Our calling as a church is not to get everybody to come to church, believe it or not, Believe it or not, the calling of the church, guess what? What's the church? It ain't this building. Okay, that the church ain't this building. It's not this room. We could burn this place down and the church would be just fine. Okay, why? Because you are the church. You is the church, okay? And the problem is that the church is just doing kingdom stuff in the church building. That's the problem. Jesus didn't go everywhere and say, hey, would you come to my synagogue, please? And then I'll minister to you, right? What did Jesus do? He was out everywhere doing the works of the kingdom outside of the synagogue. What were the apostles doing? Same thing, right? They were getting outside and doing the works of the kingdom outside of the church building. And this is really important. Why? Because as a leader, what I was doing is I was putting expectation. And my expectation for my people was, hey, and this is, by the way, the expectation of 95% of church leaders. Okay, this is what we really want you to do. We want you to, A, come to church. Right? You've probably heard that one before. Right? B, we want you to give your money to church. Right? Tithe your money to church. And C, we want you to volunteer at church. Guess what? If you do all three of those things, you will be making 95% of pastors very happy. Right? They'll be like, this is a faithful brother. <laughs> this right here is a faithful sister. Right? Why? Because that vision is designed so that you help us minister. Right? In this whole scheme, you become the enablers where you're helping me minister to more people, right? You're bringing your friends, right? You're giving me money, right? You're, you're volunteering. You're making the slides and doing the music, right? So they're nice and set up, right? So I can get them, okay? I'm exaggerating a little bit. You guys get it. I'm caricaturing myself to some degree. But I, it's because I hope that, it, you know, I'm painting a picture for you that I want you to understand, Right? The problem with this model is that it is completely backwards. It's completely backwards. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the gifts that Christ gives the church. They are the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the evangelists, and the pastors. Why? To build up the saints, to train them for the work of ministry. That's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4. Meaning, what's the point? The point is not that you're supposed to be helping me minister, but I'm supposed to be helping you minister. Have you noticed something that's a little bit different about our ministry? It's that I don't expect you just to come to church and pay your money to church and volunteer at church. In fact, I rarely emphasize or talk about those things, right? I almost never talk about those things. What are the things that I talk about? I talk about how you have to take over your college. 
Guess what makes me happy? I don't care if you show up every Sunday. Right? I don't care if you give me all your money. Right? I don't care. What I care about is that you're active in the work of mission and the ministry that Jesus has called you to. Am I making sense? Now hear me. Whether you do that or not, I love you. Right? Just like God. Right? He loves us for who we are, not for what we can do. Okay? So you're always going to get affection from me. But in terms of, I'm going to try and be clear with you. Are you fulfilling the calling and purpose on your life by showing up on Sundays? Answer, no. No. Not my expectation. What's my expectation? Because you've been called to be a powerful minister. You've been called to be a powerful minister. And you've been called to be a powerful minister in the place where I can't minister. Am I making sense? Right? This, the, the secret power of the church, I say this all the time, is locked inside of saints who don't understand how gifted they are and how amazing the calling and destiny is on their life. Am I making sense? This is what I think the seven mountain mandate is about. Now, hear me. I have seen seven mountain teachings get really warped. There's a version of this that's like God wants you to be famous, right? God wants you to be influential, right? He wants you, right, to have the biggest Instagram account ever, right? He wants you to be insta-famous, right? He wants you to be the CEO of your company and all this kind of stuff, right? Now, there's a mixture of truth in there, and there's a lot of not truth, okay? Here's what I'm going to say. No, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to come after me, what do you have to do? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. So let me put it to you this way. If you're really following God effectively, are you going to get only praise and glory? That's a pretty good sign that you're not really following God. Okay? The way it works in the kingdom is when you're actually doing the will of God in your life, it starts making the enemy mad at you. And he starts doing things like getting people to hate on you and persecute you and demote you and fire you and get rid of you, etc., etc., etc. Hear me, I am not calling you to some fantasy land career where God's always going to bless your life and you're going to become the, the top dog at your company. No. No. What's probably going to happen if you do what I tell you to do, right, is you're probably going to get some nice persecution in your life, right? Now, that makes me excited, okay? I get excited when I think about you getting persecuted, right? Why? Because it means that you're bearing fruit in eternity. If you get persecuted for the right reasons, I should stipulate, okay? Okay? But look, it's the same way. Look, if you do what I'm calling you to do, you go to your campus and you tell them about Jesus, you get persecuted, right? If you stand up for controversial biblical truths, what happens on your college campus? You get persecuted. Isn't this glorious? Right? This is wonderful because it's the sign of great honor in the kingdom. Am I, am I making sense? So that's what's not. Seven Mountain Teaching is not dominionism. Okay, that, uh, I've heard that critique all the time. It's completely false. Dominionism is this idea that what we're trying to build is a theocracy here, right? We want to get rid of church and state, and then we, want, we, only, we only vote for Christians because we want Christians to rule and dominate over everyone else. Now, is there a truth in that? No, I don't care if Christians rule, and I want Christ to rule. You know, understand, we understand the distinction there? 
right? I want Christ to rule. I want his ways to rule in people's hearts, okay? And what I am saying is that as you pursue, you want to be the godliest influence on society, not the greatest. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's make this clear, okay? Because I hear a lot of these criticisms that are just foolishness because people don't understand what the heck is being taught. Okay, so none of you are going to do that. Amen? Amen. All right. All right. To engage in this calling, you must see the spiritual war around you. Let's actually look in the Bible, huh? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says this. You can just look at the board. For though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Now, time out. I better explain what the heck Paul means. Because he uses like that flesh. And you're like, what? what's the flesh? I don't know what that is. It just means he's just saying we have a body, right? For though we live in the flesh, we live inside of a, a physical body, right? We do not wage war according to the flesh, right? Meaning we don't beat people with hammers and swords and shoot them with guns, okay? For the weapons of our warfare are not weapons of the world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down, underline this, arguments. We tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is our war. What is our war? Maybe I need to back up. You live in a war. Okay, so I... Sometimes I assume people know what I'm talking about. You live in a war. I've talked about this before. We live in the greatest spiritual war that has ever been fought. Right? We're right in the middle of it. We're right in the midst of it. It's raging all around us, but only we can only engage in it to the degree that we can see it. Why is Jesus saying all the time, he says things like, let him who has ears hear. Um, Jesus, they all have ears. You're talking to humanoids, right? But what's he talking about? He's not talking about physical ears. He's talking about spiritual ears. The ones who have spiritual ears, let them hear what I'm saying. And this is a theme. This theme throughout scripture that we must be able to spiritually see and spiritually hear. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, you are living in the matrix. Did you guys see that movie? It's not too old, right? It's not like, yeah. Because I came out, I was in like high school or something like that. You, you, some of you guys were like barely born. You're like three. Did you rent it? Did you watch it on Netflix? How many of you guys have never seen The Matrix? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to explain this. I just assumed, oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm going to explain it. Okay. All right, for those who never, this is going to be a one-minute explanation, okay? <laughs> I'm going to ruin the movie for you. Sorry. Great movie, by the way. It's, it was a divinely ordained movie, okay? Amazing movie, except for Keanu. That guy cannot act. He sucks. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Okay, but the movie, man, do you see him trying to do kung fu? I was like, come on, dude. You're stiff as a board. Anyways, okay. For those of you who've never seen the movie, this is the idea that, that Keanu Reeves is, is, is a hacker. Something we, it's hard to believe, right? But he is playing a hacker, right? And he is realizing there's something weird with the world. There's like a, 
what's the matrix? He hears this talk about it on the interwebs, right? And he's like, what is the matrix? And, and he meets this really mysterious guy named Morpheus, right? And Morpheus is like, I'll show you what the matrix is. Take the red pill, right? And he eats this pill and he goes into a mirror. I know it's so weird right now, right? What happens? He wakes up in a completely different world. And what he realizes is that the real world is one where he's just plugged in to a mainframe and he's being used as a human battery. And what they're doing is they're just putting a basically like a virtual reality thing over his eyes. And he's like living in this fake world that's like this world, but the real world is completely different. Did that kind of work? Okay. Amen. Go watch the movie in Jesus' name. Okay. This is important. Why? Because that is exactly what's happening. That is exactly the world we live in. The real world is primarily spiritual. The real world is primarily spiritual. But if you don't exercise your spiritual sight and your spiritual hearing, then you think the world is primarily physical. That's why when you read about angels and demons, you're like, what is that all about? What are those demons doing all the way, by the way? And what are they doing all the time? They're just like floating around, you know, occasionally like whispering little things to you. No, let me tell you what they're doing. They're building demonic philosophies all throughout the earth. They're actually doing stuff. I never met one. That's because he's messing with you all the time, bro. If you never had, if you never have been aware of a demon messing with you, that's because they mess with you so often that you don't even know. You think that's just normal life. Okay? No, no, no. Guess what? You're actually supposed to use your sword. You're actually supposed to use the thing. Right? This idea that you've been given a spiritual sword, and like Christians are like, oh, it's figurative. It's, you know, yeah, it's kind of like a sword. No. No, it's a spiritual sword. When you use the word of God correctly, it actually does spiritual damage. Okay? It's not a figurative lesson. It's a spiritual lesson. It's not like your spirit comes alive again when you believe in Jesus. It's that your spirit comes alive. We seeing the difference, right? If we're carnal-minded, then we can't understand the things of God. That's why Romans says, renew your minds, right? Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be renewed in your thinking so that you can see the perfect will of God and approve of it. Does that make sense? When your behavior is conformed to the pattern of the world, what it means is that you're all full full of worldly thinking, right? Oh, yeah, I really want that new car, right? And that's all you think about is the stupid car, okay? Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to like cars. I'm just saying if you're in the middle of a war, is getting a new car really the priority of your life? Only if you're dumb, right? But that's the point here. The point that the Bible is talking about is it's saying that If we allow the word of God to take hold in our hearts, what it does is it opens our spiritual eyes and our 
ears to perceive reality, what the world is really like. And if we can, then we recognize that we're in the midst of a great spiritual battle. And not just that, but that we have a unique and amazing part to play in this battle. Let me put it to you another way. To the degree that your walk with Jesus is boring, that's the degree that you're still worldly. Does that make sense? Now, if you recall last week, I said that we happen to live in the most immature church in the world. So hear me, I'm not trying to say you're the really immature one compared to the guy next to you. No, I'm saying we are living in the most immature church in the world. Right? Why does Jesus talk about how difficult it is for a rich man to be saved? It's harder to go for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, he says. Why? Because the wealth makes us focus on the material things. Why? Because your wealth is only good in the material world. Your wealth can't buy jack in the spiritual world. That's why you have all this wealth and you're like, oh yeah, I'm rich. And Jesus says, no, you're poor and you're blind and you're wretched. And you're like, no, I'm rich, right? Are we making sense here? Right? This is what the scriptures are talking about, that this is a war that's going on. And guess what? The outcome of the spiritual war is what affects the physical world. What am I talking about? Like, is it a coincidence that Hitler just hated Jews? He just woke up one day, oh, I just feel like hating Jews today, right? That he decided to gas and kill one-third of them? He took out six million Jews just because he just felt like it. Well, that's pretty ironic. That's, that's a pretty amazing coincidence, except that Jews have a history of being persecuted in every single cultural context they've ever been in. Coincidence? Oh, well, let me put it this way. Except in America, in America, Jews have found an amazing life here. America is remarkably free of anti-Semitism. In fact, America has been the greatest blessing to the Jewish people in its history. And, and America just happens to be the most blessed nation in the world. Coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think it's just a big fat coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that Stalin just feels like killing Jews. Right? I don't think these things are coincidences. I think they're part of a spiritual war and a spiritual battle. By the way, what were the philosophies that undergirded the actions of both Stalin and Hitler? Oh, it's just a little thing called socialism. But now it's cool. This is the freaking stupidest thing ever. Okay, Socialism is the great evil ideology of the 20th, 20th century. Socialism killed hundreds of millions of people around the world. And America was so blessed as it was remarkably free of socialism. Why? What are the demons doing? What did I say they're doing? They're hardening and concocting philosophies throughout the world that are hostile to the gospel of Jesus. Do you understand? Why is it that when, when you go and witness to random person on your college campus, 
What's the default attitude towards Christianity today? It tends to be pretty, like, why would I want to be a Christian? Right? That's, by the way, that's not, you know, that's not the reaction that Christianity gets in lots of places around the world. In lots of places around the world, you go, I'm a Christian. I, I just talked to a friend of mine who's a, who's a pastor over in China. And he, you know, he's telling me that people are eager. They, they hear like, whoa, what, yeah, what's that about? I've heard of it, but I, I don't know anything about it. They're, they want to know about it, right? Why is it like that in other places of the world, but not in America? Oh, it's just, who knows? I know. <laughs> I know. Because there are demonic philosophies that have been promulgated and become so part of our cultural fabric now that people are predisposed to reject the gospel before they've even really heard it. They don't know anything about Jesus. All they know is that he hates gay people. That's all they need to know. Never mind that 95% of their moral philosophy comes from Jesus' teachings. Right? The only reason they believe 95% of their understanding of morality is because Jesus' teachings were so influential that they gave birth to Western civilization. Never mind that. He hates gay people. I don't need to follow him. Why, why do you think that? How, how has that just come about? How has that become a cultural stronghold in our culture? Oh, I don't know. Maybe some demons were doing something. Right? And then you, Christian... What's your job? What's your job? Oh, I'm, I, I don't know. I try and evangelize every once in a while, right? And I say, if you're doing that, God bless you. Good job. But that is just the tip of the iceberg, okay? Here, let me tell you what you need to be doing as a believer. You need to disciple the nation. The whole thing. Disciple the nation. This is such a misunderstood aspect of Christianity. Why? Because we've whittled down what discipling nations means, and we've turned it into trying to get a couple people saved before the whole nation goes to hell. Right? By the way, I could get into this, but look, give me, let me give you the 30-second version. There was an eschatology, a theology of future of the future, okay, that got really popular in America. It's called dispensationalism, if you want to look it up, okay? And what this theology taught was that the world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse, right? And then one day it's going to get so bad that Jesus is going to have to come and kill them all, right? But before he does, he'll save, he'll take the people that believe in him, okay? Guess what? How many of you guys ever read Left Behind? None of you. How many of you watched the corny movie? None of you guys. Oh, you did, Diane. Nice. Okay. All right, the whole Left Behind series, that's dispensationalism, and that's the most popular eschatology in America today. What it does is if you buy into this whole framework, what it does is it makes you think that discipling America is a lost cause. Like, why the heck would we even try and, and change the nation, right? It's going to hell. It's already been foretold. It's doomed, right? I would, if, if you have that mentality, I would like to lovingly rebuke you. Okay? I'd like to lovingly rebuke you. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that both good and evil are maturing until the end of the age. So it's not that the earth just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. It also gets better and better and better and better in some ways. This is an important understanding. Why? 
Because the fate of the nation hangs in the balance. And if you don't believe that you can shift the nation, how the heck are you going to try and do it? If you don't believe that it's possible, then you can't engage. It's like, no, it's going to hell. It's over. Screw them. I'm going to heaven. That's not loving, right? But it's also powerless. It's a powerless way of thinking, right? Why? Because do you know why the nation is in the state that it is? It's because there were some very smart people who got the understanding of Seven Mountain theology from a, perver- from a demonic perspective, and they infiltrated all the cultural centers of America today. Now, that's a big statement. I'm going to spend a couple weeks breaking that down, so don't feel like you have to get that all at once. But let me give you the intro. The intro is this. Our enemy in Western civilization is not Islam. If you go to Egypt, your enemy is Islam. Okay, and that's a scary enemy. It's a terror. It's a terror. It's a spirit of fear. But here, that's not the enemy. The enemy here is secular humanism. Okay, the enemy, your enemy, if you're a follower of Jesus, is secular humanism. This is the ideology, the philosophy that presumes itself to be greater than Christianity. This is the one that says, why the heck would you need to worship something? You're a person. Have some dignity, right? That's all just archaic mumbo-jumbo that ancient people believed in because they couldn't figure out why the sun went down, right? Oh, it's a god, right? Like they were idiots, all those ancient people, right? That's the mentality that today we have education, we have enlightenment values, right? We have science, we have technology, and all of that ancient Bible stuff is stupid, and anybody who believes that is stupid. Now I want to say the nature of this spirit, because you have to understand there's a spiritual power behind this thing, is that what it tries to do is it tries to ridicule those who believe in Jesus. I would guess that for the majority of you, the fear is not that somebody's going to come out with a knife and kill you. That would be the fear if you were in Egypt, right? The fear is that somebody's going to make fun of you. Right, the fear that somebody is going to belittle you, that somebody's going to reject you, that someone's going to think, "Oh my gosh, what a what a moron!" Right? Why? That's secular humanism. That's the spirit. What it is is it intimidates you into becoming afraid. Guess what? You, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are probably the largest, you know, minority group in America. Something like twenty percent of Americans attend church regularly. You know how crazy that is? 20%. How many people are gay or lesbian in America? 3%. We're, there's seven times as many, and this I'm talking about Bible-believing, regular church-attending Christians, right? If we add the nominal Christians, we're talking, you know, 70% or something ridiculous, right? But they're all humanists. They're Christian humanists, Okay. But if we're talking actual devoted believers, 20% of the nation, but can I tell you that that 20% is cowed in this day for the most part. That 20% is so intimidated that they will not speak up, even for things, even for things that are clearly taught in the Bible, they won't say a word. Because they're so afraid that they're going to be offensive. They're so afraid that they're going to be ridiculed. They're so afraid that they're going to be persecuted, again, not by physical violence, but because somebody's going to think, badly about them can i tell you what that is that my friends is cowardice 
That's cowardice. That's reason number one. The second reason is that people just aren't serious about enough about their faith so that they don't actually care to learn and defend what the scriptures say. Just like, well, I'm going to go to heaven, and I don't really need to be serious about this. That's the one that I preach against all the time, right? That can't be us. Why? Because we have a calling in this thing. Do you know that twice as many people in America self-identify as politically conservative as compared with those who self-identify as politically liberal? There are two times as many conservatives as liberals in our country today. I bet you didn't believe that before I just told you, right? Why? How can that be the case when all you see on your Facebook feed and on TV and in your music, how can it all be liberal when there's twice as many conservatives in America? Well, I'll tell you, because the liberals control the places of influence in our nation. If we look in the education field, do you know 96% of Harvard faculty political donations go to the Democratic Party? 96%. That is stupid. In the law school at Harvard, it's 98%. That means there's one dude who's brave enough to say, I actually donated to a Republican candidate. Okay. Now, hear me. I'm not trying to say that Republican, the Republican Party is the party of God. Okay. We're going to get more into this when we get into politics. But right now, the Republican Party is far more godly in terms of its ideology and the things that it's fighting for. Again, we'll get more into that later on. In the news media, do you know that only 7% of journalists identify as Republican? 7%. I learned this when I, you know, when I was a, a younger Christian back in 2009, there was a political movement called the Tea Party. How many of you guys remember the Tea Party, right? And I remember I read all these headlines about how crazy these people were, right? Like these crazy people down in Alabama, right, who live on farms and they hate black people, right? And I was like, man, who the heck are these Tea Party people? And I actually researched what they actually believe and something weird happened to me. I was like, I'm a Tea Partier. (laughs) That's me. And I realized in that moment, the, the journalists are lying. They're lying. Right? They're purposefully deceiving. Right? Do you know that 10% of Americans identify with the Tea Party? It's a huge percentage. Right? One-tenth of the nation identify with the Tea Party. That's something you would never think, given the way they're disparaged in the national media. What's my point? My point is this, brothers and sisters, especially if you're a young person in America, you have been discipled by secular humanists. It has been coming through your your television programs, your cartoons, right? We talk about the Disney movies today. It's all secular humanism being preached, right? You watch Zootopia? It's all secular humanism, okay? All the values being taught are secular humanist values. The whole notion, Bible, that is racist. Can I tell you what that is? It's not the Bible. That is Marxism. We'll get more into that in the politics thing. Okay. When we don't understand the things that are preached to us, can I tell you that for the most part, human beings are not independent thinkers? For the most part, they tend to do. Do you know that people around them do, right? How do I know this? Do you know that young Koreans growing up in Southern California, many of them happen to go to church? 
So why are you here? For many of you, if you're going to be honest, if I'm going to be honest with myself, I went to church for many years because my mom made me, right? And at some point, that faith has to become our own. But we need to understand that we tend to do what the majority around us thinks, right? In our Ignite conference, I talk about Coke versus Pepsi, right? In blind taste tests, 80% of people prefer Pepsi because it's 4% sweeter. It has more sugar in there, okay? So you take a blind taste test. That's why, you know, this is before your time, but Pepsi used to run these ads where they would, you know, do these blind taste tests. And people are like, oh, it's Pepsi, right? They like Pepsi better than Coke, right? And they would do these ads, and yet Coke always kicked Pepsi's butt. Why? Because they spent billions of dollars on marketing, right? The average person saw that Coke symbol some ridiculous amount of times a day. I forget the statistic now. It's like 10 times, right? You see that Coke sign 10 times. Because of their, because of their marketing, buyers preferred Coke 80% of the time. Now, why do I say that stat? Because guess what? That's you, right? Why do you have the values that you have? Because you've seen them 80% of the time, right? You come here every week and you have someone like me shouting at you, right? You think, oh, maybe Jesus is real, <laughs> you know? Right? That's the way we work. Now, I'm not trying to say that we're all a product of our environment, but I am trying to say that all of us are highly influenced by our environment. This is humility to understand. And if you're a young person, you have been highly influenced by secular humanistic thinking. Why? Because they control your education. They control the news media. They control arts and entertainment. They control the music that you listen to. Our staff team was talking the other day, and I was telling them, I hate rap music. And Lauren was all offended back there. <laughs> right? I don't, I don't dislike rap. I just dislike hip-hop culture. I mean, this culture is, is, you know, for the most part, pretty disgusting, okay? I'm not saying all rap is bad. But I am saying that you have to understand these things influence. It influences you with your thinking. There's a reason why everyone wants a Rolex watch. Now, this is you guys aren't are too young, right? When you hit that bonus time, you know, then you'd be like, oh, the boss has a Rolex. Everybody wants a Rolex. Why? Rolex make the ugliest watches, okay? They're so ugly, right? The problem is that I see their advertisements all the time. They're advertising everywhere, right? What are they saying? Buy me. I'm cool, right? And you go... I just feel like getting a Rolex. I don't know why. I just want one. What am I saying? I'm saying that we're influenced by our environment, and your environment is primarily humanistic, right? Why is it weird for you to stand in the middle of your school and start to pray out loud? Why is that weird? Because all the humanists would get offended at it. Why is it weird for you to pray in school? You realize that 30 years ago, everybody prayed in school. You had to. It was like law or something. And 30 years later now, it's, un, it's unheard of, right? When people would dare pray in school, they go, excuse me, separation of church and state, dude. <laughs> Which means we're all atheists and you have to be too. That's what it means, right? Separation of church and state just means you're free to practice whatever religion you choose. So if I'm out here praying, why should that offend you except that you're a bigot? In our culture today, everybody's easily offended. It's so easy to offend people, man. I'm good at it. 
Can I tell you what it means if you're easily offended? It means you're immature. That's what it means. Let me put it to you another way. Just try and offend Jesus. It'll be hard. It's very difficult to offend somebody who's mature. You know why? Because they just know you're deceived. <laughs> Poor little deceived person. Why? Because they're secure. They're emotionally secure. Am I making sense? When you're emotionally insecure, every little thing is, oh, how dare you? That threatens who I am. Right? You don't agree with me? How dare you? Right? Because you're emotionally in insecure. Right? And what's my point? This emotional insecurity has become glorified in our culture, and people are using it as a tool to control other people. And so many Christians are giving into it because they don't understand the demonic root. Look, if you stand up for Christ and you offend somebody, thank God. Winston Churchill has a great quote, right? He says, you have enemies? Good for you. That means you stood up for something sometime in your life. That's a great quote. I'm a little weary of mature Christians who don't have enemies who get along with everybody. Like, show me the biblical hero who did that. And then there's always, man, I hate it when the pastor gets political. You must have hated it when Jesus got political too. You must have hated it when Apostle Paul got political, when John the Baptist got political. They all got political. Why? Because any controversial truth becomes political. So if you're never allowed to speak in areas of controversial truth, what kind of light are you being? How are you being the light of your culture if you won't dare speak into controversial issues of, it, of truth? that matter. And if we have a culture in Christianity, this is one that I hate too, this idea that we can't, we have to be very careful not to offend anybody so that, you know, they think better of Jesus. The problem is I'm actually trying to introduce them to the real Jesus, right? Who is a complex package? He's not all likable for everybody. If you are also, he's super likable. He's the most amazing personality in the universe. But there are also things about him that will offend many people, especially in our offense-driven culture today. So what am I saying? Brothers and sisters, disciple the nation. Change it. Turn the nation. How do you do that? You become the godliest influence in your company. But that will get me fired, Pastor Dennis. Then start your own company. I can't do that. Right. We'll talk about that when we get to business. <laughs> what am I saying? I'm saying sacrifice your promotion. That's what I'm saying. Sacrifice your popularity at your company if Jesus asks you to. Now, I'm not saying be, you know blazing hype super christian and purposefully offend people there is a place for wisdom but i'm saying we can't let our fear of being penalized by the world get in the way of our calling to turn the nation to god right these days the strategy that's been going forth is to start planting churches in the world we're starting a new initiative here at btm we're praying that god's going to give us grace to plant a church at a local high school now here's what i'm going to tell you I want you to plant churches at your companies. Why not? Plant a church there. Start a church in your company. That's one of the, the strategies that's going out right now that's bearing great fruit in the earth right now. 
and understand how, how, what the kingdom's like. This is, we're gonna, the, the majority of our message, today's just an introduction. The majority of the series is going to be going into every field and understanding what the kingdom is like in business. What does kingdom business practice look like? Do you understand that the majority of business practice is very manipulative? I know that because I worked in sales, right? I was telling the staff leaders, or, you know, the, the student leaders about, you know, the, all the ways that you close sales, right? How do you do it? You trick them, right? Oh, so do you want a car charger with that, right? Oh, so would you like this one or this one? That's the assumptive close, right? You're going to buy this one or this one. Which one would you like, right? All these ways that we manipulate people in business practice, right? As, as somebody who's walking with God, you can't do any of those, right? But you have to understand what the kingdom is like in every area of society. Why? So that you can stand for righteousness. And God's promise is that even though you might suffer in the short term, he will bless you in the long term. That's the promise. Amen? All right, worship team, come on up. All right, today was kind of an introductory message. If, if that was completely new to you, I understand that I said a lot of things that are probably pretty weird and pretty different. Here's my encouragement. I would encourage you to go on YouTube and to Google Seven Mountains, okay? You'll see a dude named Lance Wallnow, okay? He's got some good introductory teaching on the Seven Mountains. Learn about it. We're going to be going deep in this. Why? Because my desire in my heart is that when you graduate from college, you would have a sense of personal calling of how God wants to use you to disciple the nation, right? How he's to use your job, your career, right? And you would go into that place with a kingdom vision. Why? Because you have to defend the kingdom vision that you have. And I say that if you do that, you will bear great fruit in your life and you will avoid the trap, avoid the trap of losing your passion and losing your vision for the kingdom. Amen? All right, right now let's just stand up. All we're going to do today as we go into our ministry time is this. I just want us to start asking God for vision of the kingdom. Ask him to open up your spiritual eyes. That you'd be able to see everything from his perspective. To see life from his perspective. Here's the truth. You weren't made just to suck air for 70 years and die. That's, that's not why you were made, to enjoy some video games on the side. Your, your life has much greater purpose than that. And we've got to tap into the one who created us and designed us and called us in his son. Am I making sense? Right now, I just want to lift up our hands and just start to pray. Just start to ask God right now to give us kingdom vision. Lord, show me. What do you want to do in the earth? What's your desire in the earth? What's my major, God? What can I use it for? How can I use this for your glory? How can I use my career, my job? Father, break off fear and intimidation even now. And that's what I'm going to take an altar call for. If you know that you need fear to be broken off your life, you know that there's been a spirit of intimidation on you and you want to grow in boldness, I want to invite you to, to overcome us on you. This is something that has happened. This is leadership in this culture. You have to overcome a spirit of intimidation for you to influence anybody in our culture today. Let's pray.